Hey, what's up? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk to industry-leading marketing professionals about their content marketing philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I'm your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Janessa Lance, the VP of Marketing at DBT Labs and the former Senior Communications Manager at HubSpot. In our conversation, we discussed developing your audience for content market fit, structuring content to be insanely readable, and different ways to help your reader recall your content. I hope you enjoy the show. Janessa, I would love to learn a little bit more about your content marketing philosophy and the impact it can have on a business. I very much came up through like the editorial thought leadership side of content and, and content practice has matured quite a bit over the past few years. And you have these different, you know, kind of strains. You have content folks who are uh, like performance marketers, right? Who, who are like really, really great at the, the SEO motion. And there's been so much maturity in that space as well. That isn't just like, we know the stuff. And then, you know, you certainly have folks are talking a lot about like the media motion right now. A lot is, is like a very hot topic, videos, podcasts, and that type of thing. I think the educational track is another super important one where you see a lot of folks, content marketers come up through and that's like a whole world. And then like thought leadership editorial is kind of my zone. And so for me, the work of content marketing was always like the narrative work of a company, right? And so thinking about where does the company fit in the landscape of competitors? What is your founder's story, right? What are Who are the people at your company that are interesting and, and how do you elevate them? And so it's probably more of like the PMM flavor, PMM slash, you know, corporate communications, which Tommy, you mentioned, like I came up in. Uh, that, that's sort of how I think about like the work of content. And then that's what took me into leading a marketing team is very much coming from that background of thinking about, you know, who's our audience? What's the story we're trying to tell? What's the problem that we're solving for customers? One of the things that I think about when it comes to content marketing, I think a lot of the SEO content that people talk about is a necessary evil. And I am kind of in <laughs> that evil. Camp. I don't know well, if it's evil. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. So I think it's necessary. However, Erin Balsa was on not too long ago, and she had said, CEOs don't make decisions off of SEO articles, yep. right? And I think there's something really interesting to that. Now, me personally, I fall into that like educational media thought leadership sort of area using formats like this to sort of express ideas and communications and, and just the way that you think about that. Tell me a little bit about and kind of the philosophy behind that idea of thought leadership and connecting to audience development and how are you matching those thoughts up with the audience to find that content market fit? So one of the things that's been very interesting for me joining DBT Labs is it is a very community-led company. And what that means is that we have been very, in the, in the early days particularly, we were very comfortable with the, the community kind of telling telling us what we were becoming. That's not terribly unusual for open source companies, right? That have, you know, open source product, big developer communities around them. Like, so we're not super unique in that way. One example of that is our founder CEO um, published this, this like foundational piece of content very early on called the DBT viewpoint. And it's a document that if you subscribe to like Andy Raskin, a uh, great product marketer, it's like our statement about the old way of doing things versus the new way of doing things. I think Andy calls it the old game and the new game. So it was like this document that that captured that thing. And the foundational insight is that analysts, who is our audience, they need to be able to access the tools necessary to do their work. And so instead of always having to go to data engineers, and asking them to like add a column to the warehouse or do something, whatever, they need to be able to do that themselves. Otherwise, 
your the success of your job is dependent on somebody else delivering the results that you need. So that's like a whole mouthful. Right. The success of your job is dependent on somebody else. And actually, the way to do that is to adopt, apply software engineering best practices to the analytics code. And so that's like not a fun story. And it was about two or three years later that the DBT community, it was particularly this um, gentleman named Michael Kaminsky, he wrote this post about the practice of analytics engineering. And the community started to converge around this idea of like, what we're doing, this practice of bringing software engineering workflows and applying them to analytics code, which is SQL, is what we're doing is analytics engineering. And so we really leaned into that. And to me, that's exactly an example of what you're talking about. Like, we don't take credit. We did not invent this concept of analytics engineering. We sort of like co-created it with the community. And I, th I think that's important. It's a pretty different way of operating from what marketers are used to, you know, where we like, come up with our special ideas and then we like push it out into the world. It's kind of like a more organic way of arriving at the thing. When I was at Shopify, which is where you and I first met, that was kind of our idea when it came to our content development as well, where from a product standpoint, we knew, okay, we were a stripped down version of what everybody else had. We didn't have as many features. And what we were doing in our content strategy was focusing on the things that nobody else was doing. We were looking at the competitive landscape and we said, what's everybody talking about? What's nobody talking about? How can we jab in those places where they're weak and then go toe-to-toe -to -toe in those areas where we have to go toe-to-toe? -to -toe? And it sounds like when you're co-created with a community, you're really sort of reflecting back the conversation, but in a way where it's a little bit more crystallized. Does that sound about right? And if so, can you talk about that a little bit more? I think that it's absolutely right. It's so for us, it is so tied to like the DNA being an open source company. And so it makes its way into the way that we release products as well. So we started work on this thing called the metrics layer, which is in data world is something people are extremely excited about. And this started, it's just a pull request. And so it's public, right? We're saying, hey, we're going to work on this thing. And people were incredibly excited about it. There were like 100 comments on the GitHub pull request. And immediately that's the beginning of the story of the metrics layer, right? So like if you're a product marketer at, on the DBT Labs team, like you're reading through those threads, right? And you're saying, hey, what is the value of this thing? What is the story that we're telling around this thing? And that starts to be the foundation of content strategy and really overall go-to-market strategy. Ryan, who's a frequent regular of the show, says he's been sending your content barbell medium piece to people for years now. Can you tell me a little bit about content barbells versus treadmills? Oh, that is so nice to hear. Yeah, this was an RJ Metrics thing. So at RJ Metrics, I was very much attempting like HubSpot recommended content strategy, you know, in the year of whatever it was, 2014, 2015, which is like your three or four blog posts a month, you know, your monthly webinar. We've all been there, right? Yeah. And it was just... Uh, it was like a real grind, right? We're like every month, every quarter, you're like, what's our thing now? You're constantly starting from zero, right? Like you're getting on the treadmill. It just felt like a total grind. And so we had this idea to do this research piece that was based on product data. So RJ Metrics was a data platform for e-commerce companies. So we did some like analysis on customer lifetime value, churn, put it together on a benchmark. The results were just ridiculous, but it was just like perform like nothing else we had ever done. All of these things that were incredibly hard just became extremely easy. And so we ended up using the first of these reports and and milking it for months. And so one of the things that I did is I built this webinar program where we would take the foundational insights from the report and they were like five parts in the webinar. And then we would invite different guests on to speak to those results. And so we had like somebody who invests, an investor in e-commerce companies, we had somebody who runs an e-commerce company, probably on Shopify, right? Like these different folks who kind of provided these different lenses and we could put a different title on all of them, right? And so if you're able to take like the core asset is the same and it becomes super easy for guests, right? Where it's like, 
we basically have given you something to speak to. You're just going to show up and insert your expertise. And that's kind of the idea of like the barbell strategy. Mm -hmm. So you basically want to do like your big, big risky bets and then supplement them with more short things. And so this was kind of a, a modified version of that, which is saying you do one thing that is like super valuable and then you do all of your other effort is like atomizing it. So it's content repurposing, but you have to make sure that like your heavy side of the barbell can actually support all of that repurposing. And research is like so useful for that because you're talking about data that people want. You're just kind of like distributing in different ways and applying different kinds of insight on top of it. So you're talking about repurposing well before everybody else was doing it. And I love the idea that you're also taking this sort of master piece and breaking it down to like dig in to a little bit more. How effective has that? Are you still doing something to that degree? Now that you're VP, are you sort of encouraging your teams to do something to that degree? And how is that working if you are? We have not replicated that to date. We actually don't have much of a content team at, at ABT Labs. We have two content folks and they're primarily focused on really like SEO work, mm -hmm. and which is for us is around like a user-generated content motion. And so we have not yet got to research yet, which I am very excited to get to. Our biggest investments in content on our team have all been around amplifying the DBT community. So we invest a ton in events. We do this big user conference coalesce. We do we like have a very ambitious meetup program. That kind of stuff has been like a huge source of just like the community talking about their work and it creates a ton of noise. That is where our focus has been. I'm excited to bring the research play back. So speaking of community, right? And I want to move into the next section of the show here. What's the process that you were using to grow the community? The thing that always bugs me when marketers talk about their success is that often denies factors that are much bigger than marketing. And the biggest thing that has driven DBT success and, and the growth of the DBT community is the underlying market dynamics. Like companies all over the world are shifting to the cloud. And as part of that shift to the cloud, they're shifting to cloud data platforms. And when they adopt cloud data platforms, they say, how do people transform data in the cloud? And the answer is increasingly DBT. And so that creates this like word of mouth momentum around DBT that's just like bigger than anything that the marketing team can do. So that's like not terribly useful if you're in a company where that's not true. The only reason that I share that and think it's important to say is because I actually think it's very important if you're thinking as you're like choosing companies yeah. to recognize like what can marketing do and what can't it do? And there is like no content strategy in the world that can replicate that. And so part of your own success is dependent on like picking a winner, right? And that was your experience, Tommy, at, at Shopify, right? It's like, yes, you had a fantastic content strategy at Shopify, but oh my goodness, the rise in people shopping online is unbelievable. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a different question then, because I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's sort of identifying where the tide is going. What is your process for identifying the wave and surfing it? For me, it came down to belief in the founder. I had worked with Tristan previously. He was a technical founder. He was interested in solving for a user that was grossly underserved by other tooling in the space. And so one of the research-based projects that we did is we scraped LinkedIn illegally, <laughs> whatever, this was years ago. So we scraped LinkedIn and we did this analysis of like how many data engineers are in the world, how many data analysts are in the world, you know, SQL skills, Python skills, all that stuff. And like, one of the prevailing things is there just aren't enough data engineers. There are all these companies who want to hire data engineers. There's like everybody saying, you know, data is the oil and there just aren't enough people to do this work. 
And so DBT was all about like unlocking data engineering talent by giving analysts the skills that they needed. And so it came from a lot of, you know, the, the early insights for DBT kind of were happening around the, the time of this work. And I was like extremely excited about Tristan's vision for solving for this. He's also somebody who was an analyst and that mattered a lot to me. I was not excited about working for a company that was like, I'm a startup entrepreneur. I want to build a billion dollar company. Tristan was somebody who cared a lot about the problem space. And I was like, that seems like a good way to go. I don't know. How did you pick Shopify? Tell me. I'm How curious. did I pick Shopify? Oh, man, I was actually getting courted by big commerce at the time. And I had no idea what like I knew e-commerce because I had shopped mm. online, but I didn't know underlying platforms or anything like I just took it for granted. And basically, it came down, it was a culture fit for me. So mm. I was flown down to Texas to meet with the big commerce team in Austin. It just wasn't a good fit for me based on the vibes that I was getting from everybody. And immediately, I was flown up to Toronto immediately after that and got to hang out with the Shopify crew. And what was interesting between the two different teams was that one was very like, prove to us, you know what you're doing. And the other one said, mm. we've got you here because you know what you're doing. What was interesting about Shopify was that we had never had a top-down way of saying, here's how Shopify talks to the market. What their culture was, and this is why I think they won, because I was there when we were kind of pulling ahead and becoming a well-known name, was that they had a culture internally where they hired people that they trusted. They let people know that they trusted them. So we hired you for a reason. And then the culture is what informed how we communicated with the rest of the market. And because we had a constant feedback loop with our customers, we were able to reflect both what our mission was internally, as well as yeah. reflect what people were saying out there in the community. And that was especially important on the Shopify Plus side of the house because cloud e-commerce, it's funny now to think about this, but cloud e-commerce wasn't being taken seriously back then. Mm -hmm. This was your mm -hmm. metric day. So, you know, it was one of those things where we could very easily say like, yeah, people are promoting features, but you don't need all those features. Those features are actually bogging you down, yep, right? Yep. And what can you do when technology starts to get out of the way? And that became sort of the foundational pillar of our entire thing. And then the process was always just a matter of communicating with people, regular case studies on a weekly basis, and just always having this connection with the community that we were building as we we're going along and using our small size to our advantage. Yeah, so. I mean, you're talking about like the culture eat strategy for breakfast piece and resonates a lot. Like one of the things that surprised me so much when I joined the DBT Labs team is people didn't talk about companies. They didn't talk about account names. They talked about people. So mm -hmm. they would just name these people on a first name basis. And then you'd be like, who is this person? And they're like, oh, they're at really important company that everybody has heard of. And you're kind of like, that's so weird. Normally, you emphasize like the big name that everybody knows. And it was just this focus on the practitioner. The practitioner knows what they need. And we very much continue to hire people in that profile. Like a lot of our product managers come from like data backgrounds. And so that thing, that cultural thing is ultimately what what drives your company strategy, right? It's like the beginning. You can't actually have a, a strategy that isn't embodied by the people on your team. So I love that Shopify story. Thank you. I think it's really important to like stay dialed in. Now, Ryan shared this in here. He's actually part of the ecosystem of customer service platforms. And they're working on something over at Gorgeous that is tied into customer service platforms for e-commerce, which is a new wave. Very specifically, I would love to, and I'm going to go back to the question I just asked. How would you think about riding a wave just from an objective standpoint? Take it away from DBT 
And how are you thinking about riding those waves as they're coming along? So I read this book when I joined DBT Labs in, in 2018 called Play Bigger, which is about category creation and positioning. And one of the things that I really love is they have this idea of the category blueprint which is you're telling the market, here's where I think things are going. Well, you're telling them, here's the product that I'm building for the future. And then the category blueprint lays out like the defining characteristics of that winner of that category. And so, hey, here's the new game. And here are the five features of the vendor who's winning that space. And so you are taking control of the narrative. This is very much your Shopify experience. That's what they were doing. They're like, those features, you don't even need those features. If you're going to win in cloud e-commerce, you need these features and we're building them. And this is what we have today. And this is what is on the roadmap. And so I think that that is a big part of riding the wave from like a content and narrative perspective is telling the market, like having a vision for the future, right? And and like a vision for the future is never going to be a listicle post or a single blog post. It has to map back to your product strategy, your content strategy. And the story that you're telling to the market has to actually be connected to what you're building. And it needs to have soul. (laughs) <laughs> that's, yes. I think, really what it comes down to is the soul of what it is that you're doing. Trying well, to communicate, I mean, right? you have to have a vision, right? Like you can't actually lead thoughts if you don't have good <laughs> thoughts, right? Like what is thought leadership? Right. And I think there are a lot of people who want to be thought leaders and like don't have interesting thoughts. And so you actually do have to put that together into a compelling vision for the future and then repeat yourself like a hundred million times. Do the work to say, hey, this is where the wave is going. This is what a winner is going to look like. This is what to expect. So yeah, it has to have soul. You have to have, you actually have to have a good idea. Our first guest on the show was Tracy Wallace and she's over at Clavio now. And she had said, thought leadership is a result, not a format. Yeah. I love that. Always. That's stuck out with me ever since I heard it. I've repeated it so many times now. Tell me a little bit about your pregame. When you were active, how has that played a role in how you do your work now? The bulk of the editing work that I did was when I was at HubSpot managing their medium experiment called um, thinkgrowth.org. It was very much contributor-led. And so practitioners of all sorts, marketing people, ops people, sales, basically anyone who had like, hey, I have a thought about my my space that I want to share could contribute pieces. And so I was not working with experienced writers. I was not working with freelancers. I was not working with content marketers. It was often people who had, this was their first piece of content or, or maybe their first five pieces of content. That has been the biggest informant of my approach. In my seat today, I'm not on a, a content team, but like, for example, I'm working with our head of people ops. Again, she's not an experienced writer. And so it's like, what are the foundations, right? So much of my work doing that was figuring out if I have something that could be good. We've all been there where you have like someone optimistically who's saying, I want to write more this year. And you're like, great, you know, you're our chief product officer and it'd be great to have you write more. And I'm going to help you do that. And you can sink a lot of time into polishing something that is ultimately just like not even a good thought. And so a lot of my process is built for that. I do not care about like copy editing. I'm not that great with grammar. Yeah, I'm not probably not the world's best speller, right? Like it's very much like, is the story any good? One of the first red flags is an article that doesn't have a title on it. I know there are lots of people who, who say you can add the title after and that is like never proven to be true. An article without a title is like headless, right? It means you don't have a unifying idea. You have nothing. Right. And often those are the, it's like, Oh God, this is going to be 3000 words incoherent. That's the first thing. I and mean, so the checklist is what I think of as the spine. Do you have a head, which is your title? Do all of your subheads match up? Can you actually read the story from the heading all the way through? And then it's your neck is like your introduction. And if you have those three things, a good head, a good spine, a strong neck, you like, you've got something to work with. And so for some reason that works for me, like when I read through an article, it's like, I think about it visually. Sometimes you can actually see it 
getting like pulled. And you're like, that's a bad article, right? Like you got to push it back. So there's like one story that the whole way down. If that exists, if you have like a solid spine on your story and a good idea at the top, you can make a lot of stuff work. Then there's little things in there that need to be tweaked. But that's like the foundational thing that I'm checking for at the beginning is you have a foundation. And we were talking a little bit earlier on foundation, spine, power statements. Yeah. Can we go into that type of thing a little bit too? Then? Yeah. So there are three things I'm looking for. It's introductions, it's weak spots, and it's recall. And so the introduction is the content marketer red flag. Can you tell this was written by a content marketer who quite who like doesn't have a stake? in the content is how I would describe it. Like this is a person who isn't invested in the results of the advice that they're giving. That is bad news bears. So the way to get around that is tell a personal story or share data. And when I say share data, I do not mean 87% of companies do XYZ. I mean, proof that you are credible in talking about this thing. I'm saying I edited articles for thinkgrowth.org. I edited and published hundreds of articles. That's why you should believe me, right? And without that, I'm just some person jabbering away on the internet at 5.30 p.m. instead of making dinner plans. And so that matters. What is the stake that somebody has in, in, in the advice that they're giving you? Weak spots are really easy. Do a command F on LY words. They are such like bullshit finders. One of the really common ones is people will say, obviously and clearly. And it is almost always an indicator that what they are saying is not obvious or clear. And so they're trying to just like, convince you instead of doing the work to like prove it to you. Another one is searching for me and I. Again, I there's lots of advice out there that says you shouldn't use me and I. Maybe that was true 10 years ago. But again, I think that the internet is like so saturated with SEO content written by content marketers who have zero stake in the advice that they're giving. That as soon as you see like me and I, it's like signals to the reader, like this person is invested. They care. They're saying something about like, I'm in this. And so I think those are two things that can really strengthen a, a piece. And then the recall again is about examples, data points, images, and what I call power statements. Power statements are the things that make your work memorable. And without them, it's just a bunch of mush. If you can summarize a section with a strong statement, right? And a good power statement should be something that makes somebody wake up. And it, it can be disagreement. They can hear it and say, uh-uh, that's not right. Or, you know, maybe they're here, they read it and they're saying like, that's 100% me. But if you are not creating those moments in a piece, it's just forgettable. I think like stories and data are what make your work feel credible. I think the weak spots are things that they don't stand out to people but they make your work feel forgettable. It's just kind of mushy. You just like don't totally trust it. And then the power statements are like, that is what makes your work memorable. That's what's going to like make the thing stick for people. They, they might forget everything else about your article, but they're going to remember something that created that jolt of a reaction. What you're talking about with content marketers not being invested in it is what I call Taurus knowledge, right? They come at it with the Taurus knowledge. There's clearly not native experience there. And I think think what's great about the power statements in particular is you can engineer those. You can yes. engineer something that you know yes. people are going to disagree with or really speak to like, yes, this is true. Or, But you have to come at it from a place of authenticity and yes. experience. And, um, and there is time for all the caveats and all the nuance. There is space to be thoughtful. I'm not advocating for controversial statements for the sake of controversy and clicks. But at some point, People are busy and we are distracted and we're not going to remember all the arguments 
you have to give people something to like hold on to. <laughs> oh, perfect. All right. We're going to jump into the piece now. I would love to get your first impression of the piece. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Janessa edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to attend the next live session, sign up for our email list at thecontentstudio.com forward slash The Cutting Room or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in the next one.